On this week's show, get the inside story on how General Motors rebuilt its relationship with suppliers when we're joined by special guest Steve Kiefer, GM's Global VP of Purchasing and Supply Chain. Coming up next on AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for AutoLine This Week has been provided by Borg Warner. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. The topic today is going to be all about automotive purchasing and supply chain. Would you like to have a budget of your own every year of over $100 billion? That's what my special guest today has. Stephen Kiefer is the Vice President of Purchasing, Global Purchasing and Supply Chain at General Motors. Steve, great having you on the show here. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Also joining us today are David Welch from Bloomberg and Daron Levine, who's got his own radio channel on Sirius XM Radio, Channel 121. When do you air there? Uh, noon on Saturday and 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. Okay, great. And great having the both of you Thank here. Thank you. Steve, you're making great progress with GM purchasing. It, it used to be known in the industry as, if you were a supplier, one of the worst to deal with. That's no longer the case. General Motors just got elected by its peers as the most supportive OEM of suppliers. You yourself got the Purchasing Executive of the Year Award. you got to be pretty pleased with that. But tell me, I mean... For most of my career, all I got was an earful of belly aches from suppliers saying, I hate working with GM. Now they're saying that you're the most supportive. What's going on there? What have you changed? Well, first of all, it's humbling to get such recognition, but it's uh, much appreciated. You know, I was a supplier to uh, to General Motors for about 20 years, so uh, I know a bit some of that history, and I know what uh, some of the suppliers have said, and maybe some of them still say. Um, the progress has really been great, and it really is all about relationships. It's all about having great relationships with our suppliers and engaging in um, activities where we're really focused on win-win. And, uh, you know, when our suppliers are doing well, we're doing well. And you've got this thing that you call the SSE, the Strategic Supplier Engagement. I think I've got that right. And what this is like the creme de la creme of your supply chain, is it not? Yeah, well, it's um, we focus on sort of our top 400 suppliers, and it's really a process of transparency. It's a process that we use to give very clear feedback to our suppliers in a very structured fashion on how they're performing from a business standpoint and a cultural standpoint. We share that with them in every meeting, and it helps them get better. But one thing we've done recently to try to improve the process is something we call SSE 360, which is turning the tables and letting the suppliers tell us how we're doing. And uh, sometimes it's painful, but we're learning from it, and we're getting better from it. Steve, do you have people who kind of monitor how much the suppliers are making in terms of overall profitability? Do you keep track of their health for, for reasons both good and bad? You want to make sure they're healthy. You can't have a supplier going bankrupt or, or you know, being short on cash and then shorting you parts at a crucial hour. Um, in the old days, they used to say that, that GM and Ford would track supplier profitability. If they were making too much money, there'd be a knock on the door. Hey, guys, uh, <laughs> let's look at this contract. Yeah, well, I think the first part's still true. I mean, we certainly monitor the financial help, health of all of our suppliers. It's um, a requirement to do business with us. We want to make sure we're, you know, we're, we're dealing with suppliers that um, have a solid balance sheet and have a solid mm -hmm. future. So that part is still true. But uh, no longer are we knocking on doors and saying you're making too much money. 
you know, I would I would say it quite differently. I um, I actually prefer the suppliers that are making good money. As I said, I was a supplier for 20 years. I know how hard it is to make money in this industry as a supplier, and some of our best suppliers are some of our more profitable ones. That means they're uh, running a good business. That means they're efficient. That means they're growing their top and bottom line. And um, I don't want to talk with them about profit transfer. What I want to talk about is how we can learn from each other and both win together. It's, it's a much different approach than uh, sort of um, beating down on pricing because somebody's making too much money. And by the way, I would much rather have a profitable supplier than a non-profitable supplier because we also maintain a pretty rigorous process of troubled suppliers. And I tell you, uh, we spend a lot of time, a lot of wasted time, dealing with the troubled suppliers who aren't making money. And that's not a, that's not a fun process. You don't want to be in that process. Steve, I'd like to ask you about General Motors as a company. Uh, you're a senior executive in a key role at General Motors, and General Motors has been a company that's been reorganized in bankruptcy, just as your previous employer, Delphi, was. And uh, it, it kind of feels like a different place today. Uh, the products are much improved, according to independent reviewers. Uh, one of the qu big questions that Wall Street has is, will General Motors be able to remain stable even if the level of sales falls, as it inevitably does when the cycle goes down. Tell me some of your impressions of General Motors as a new company, how you can tell this is a different place, and do you think uh, General Motors will be able to stay stable in the next down cycle of, of sales, and, and why do you think that? Right, right. Great, uh, great question. Um, first of all, my impressions of General Motors, you know, I joined about two and a half years ago, and it's a very different company than, you know, what I knew sort of 20 years ago. Um, first of all, the product, the product portfolio, as you mentioned, it's, it's outstanding. We've got the best products that we've had in the history of the company. Um, every brand has just got, you know, too many to name right now on this show, uh, but we're just really proud of all the product offering. And then the leadership team. When I met, first met with um, Mary Barr and, and Mark Royce about uh, moving to General Motors, just the different approach that they take, um, a very, I would say hands-on informal leadership style that really empowers uh, all of our people so I think the culture is very very different and that's part of the reason for the success and then your third question about you know are we ready for a downturn I mean first of all I would say we're extremely optimistic I mean these are these are the best of times of course in the strong market that we have especially here in North America but um, like all of our um, all of our um, uh, peers and probably our suppliers we all have uh, uh, contingency plans in place and I would say through our as we say, fortress balance sheet. I think our company is very well prepared for any inevitable downturn. I would, um, I would also say that um, we've done the appropriate amount of cost cutting and um, uh, efficiency of the organization to be well prepared for, uh, for um, an eventual downturn, whenever that may be. Following up on Daron's question, are you working with your suppliers for this eventuality? We know there's a downturn out there someplace. GM is in pretty good shape, as you say, you, you call it your, your fortress uh, balance sheet. Are, are, is GM purchasing working with suppliers for that? that downturn that's out there. You know, John, I would, I would say um, not directly working with them planning on a downturn, but we do speak very openly, and it's back to this concept of being open and transparent in our discussions. We talk about what downturn scenarios might look like, and um, we especially talk about it when we're talking with suppliers about capital investment. 
because you know we all want to be very frugal with our capital investment. This is such a capital intensive uh, industry and sort of the difference between making money and losing money sometimes it's the difference between sort of 85 percent utilization and 90 percent utilization of your capital. So we try to treat our suppliers like an extension of ourselves, an extension of our value stream and we don't want any of our suppliers to make um, risky investments. So when, when there's concerns about what may happen next year, what may happen with oil prices, what impact might it have on the, uh, the truck business is a good example. We cannot make enough trucks today, as you know, and um, we're trying to encourage all of our suppliers to increase output in those critical um, midsize and full-size truck components. There's a lot of dialogue about how do we make sure that the investments we make right now will be smart for the future. So it's kind of a long way of saying through open dialogue, I think we're adequately um, managing risk for the future. Mm -hmm. I wonder, um, I, I wanted to ask, uh, your life as a supplier probably has changed somewhat with the advent of these autonomous systems that we read so much about and see mm. so much about in cars and also with the advent of uh, driverless technology that's in your R&D labs today and is going to be on the road some way. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the companies you're dealing with now and uh, how your life as a, supply, as a uh, purchasing chief has really changed because of this new technology that seems to be creeping faster almost every day? Yeah, it's um, certainly an exciting technology, and you know it's one. Of, it's going to be one of the big disruptors in our industry. And as we keep saying, we want to lead the disruption, not follow it. So, um, first of all, I would say you know some of the announcements that we've made recently, showing that we're playing a very active role in this space. Um, some of our uh, first of all, our technical announcements about putting an autonomous fleet on our technical center here in uh, Warren, Michigan, uh, this year. It's an important first step for our engineers to basically develop the product and and uh, and refine the technology. But the kind of your question about the suppliers. Um, if you look at some of the investments we're making, uh, we made this investment uh, back in January in Lyft, um, uh, car sharing uh, activity. It's not directly autonomous, but stay tuned. One day it, uh, it will be. And it's um, helping us learn um, the uh, usage patterns of, uh, of uh, uh, consumers in that part of the market. Some of the others, uh, this um, investment we made in some Silicon Valley companies like uh, Sidecar and Cruise. These are companies that have um, some unique um, software capabilities that are going to help uh, accelerate our movement into the autonomous space. Uh, some of our contracts with companies like Mobileye um, out, of, uh, out of Israel uh, to develop um, some really interesting artificial intelligence to help us uh, better um, prepare for the autonomous space. All of these things are requiring us to work differently from a um, uh, contract standpoint. So the days of old sort of, sort of um, boilerplate terms and conditions that we used to use in the traditional component purchasing activity are very, very different now. They're based on um, much more uh, sharing of intellectual property, much more focus on getting uh, technology into the market sooner, and then finding ways that the supplier and General Motors can both find win-win um, uh, opportunities through this. How do you even keep track of it all? I mean, every day I pick up, or I, I, I was going to say pick up the newspaper, every time I fire up my laptop, it seems like there's a new mobility company, whether it's autonomous, connected car, mobility services, or what. There's so much more coming out. How do you, and maybe that's not your job, but maybe that's on the, the R&D side. How do you know that you're betting on the right one and the better solution isn't right around the corner? I keep up with it by watching Autoline. Ah, right. You said the right thing, man. <laughs> Reading all these great pub publications, listening to Sirius Radio. Uh, no, but um, seriously, uh, you know, we reorganized recently and put a uh, specific group in place uh, focused on autonomous. So we've got an organization now in place that's got a single point responsibility for our autonomous 
autonomous activity and these guys are doing an incredible job we've taken some of the best and brightest from across the organization and it's not just about engineering right this is a totally different business model so we're bringing in a lot of different people from the organization who are right in the middle of this we've got um, obviously we've got our offices out in Silicon Valley which are um, uh, finding us some great opportunities and companies to work with and it's not just about Silicon Valley I mentioned uh, Mobileye out of Israel our technical center center in um, Israel is also helping us just find all kinds of interesting technologies and helping us uh, um, uh, stay abreast of this. Where to make the bets is a tough question though, right? I mean, in, in a company like General Motors, we're placing a lot of bets, a lot of strategic bets. We'll see how many of them pay out, but I assure you we're going we're gonna to have as many bets as possible covered so that we can lead this disruption. Mm -hmm. When it comes to autonomous, how much of this do you want to own uh, and keep in-house versus letting suppliers or other partners do it? Uh, because you know, if you do it all in-house, you know, maybe you fall behind because mm -hmm. you're not getting access to every mind that's out there. Uh, you know, you, you've seen like Procter and Gamble at their most innovative height. They relied on a lot of outsiders uh, to get innovation. They didn't think they had to do it all you know, within their own product development and R&D centers. How do you guys view that at GM, particularly with autonomous, because that's kind of the next frontier that everybody's looking at? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question and a really difficult question, because you can imagine when you dissect autonomous, there's just all kinds of aspects yeah. of it. Um, I would say, if I were to say it simply, I think our general philosophy would be characterized as um, activities that will differentiate our vehicles, will differentiate General Motors in the marketplace, those are the things we want to control quite closely. Uh, areas that um, are probably more generic to the industry, and I could cite a few of them. I mean, maybe you, you might say mapping technology, for example, is a good one. Mm -hmm. That's one that um, you know we, we said publicly at uh, CES in January that we had some concepts that we were working with Mobileye on. That's a business model that might be good to share with the industry. It might be good for society, it might be good for the industry. But there's other examples of very specific um, uh, uh, activities that impact the user experience that will really differentiate the GM vehicles, and those will be the ones that we want to keep in-house. In but the list in the space of autonomous, because I just kind of hit on two sort of generic things, when you get to the sensors or uh, different algorithms or different safety features, you can imagine quite a rich dialogue on every one of these. And I would say that for the most part, it's a bit of a case-by-case -case basis, but that high-level philosophy, I think, would kind of characterize what we're doing. Because I was going to ask you that about electric cars. Mm. You know, it, when you come to GM Powertrain, which, which you ran, I mean, you guys run all aspects of the powertrain, engine transmission and whatnot. But when I look at your electric cars, so much of the Chevrolet Bolt is being purchased from LG. So how do you make that make-buy decision? Do we make it in-house? Do we buy it from the outside? Where in traditional powertrain, it's definitely 100% or, or close in-house versus the approach you're taking with electric vehicles? Yeah, that's, uh, that's also a really good question. I would say the, ph the philosophy in our um, global propulsion systems, the uh, artist formerly known as Powertrain, <laughs> is, um, is, uh, is, is really, I would say, very simple, or very similar to what I was describing earlier. So we have some activities, for example, in our nine and 10 speed transmissions where we're working cooperatively with Ford Motor Company. Great partner, we're working together. We feel that that will help both of us that'll help the industry, and we don't feel that it's so critical for differentiating the vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, with the um, uh, Chevy Bolt, and I'm glad you brought that up because we're just so excited about the introduction of the Chevy Bolt uh, uh, this year, and uh, the fact that, um, by the way, uh, I was out at the Orion plant the other day, and we're running pre-production cars down the line, so it's really exciting to see you know, the Bolt. It's not just sort of a media play. It's not just a lot of hype. This is a car that we're uh, actually building the uh, early versions right now. By the way, the short sellers of Tesla 
Tesla stock, they're also very excited about yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't comment on that. Yeah. yeah. I won't comment on Are that. Are you referring to but Tesla uh, when you were talking about media plays and hype? I'm not even familiar with that company. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I, I joke. I, uh, I um, yeah. So uh, back to the, the the question at hand, though. I would say that you know when there's um, technology that will differentiate us, and I tell you on the um, on the on the Chevy Bolt, the partnership with uh, LG has really been outstanding. This is a vehicle that, uh, as you know, is going to have at least uh, 200 miles range and uh, sell for about thirty uh, thirty thousand uh, dollars after rebates. And um, I've driven it several times. I mean, this is a real this is a, a real driver's car. A lot of space, a lot of technology, a lot of um, uh, features beyond strictly the uh, the uh, EV features. And uh, that's one where I think that's a perfect example. As a matter of fact, we recognized um, LG just recently at our Supplier of the Year event for the innovation and the partnership that they're bringing to that vehicle. There is some technology there that none of us thought could be done as quickly as it was. And again, I think we're getting uh, first to market with that kind of technology and we're really excited about it. Where, where does cruise automation fit in with, the, with, with what you're doing in autonomous? They write code and software. Uh, that, that helps control autonomous cars. You guys had your own internal operations. What do they bring? Were they ahead of you guys in terms of that software? Um you know, talk about that relationship. Yeah, so um, it's a it's a it's a great question, and it's a great company. It's a company that we've um, we've known for for some time here, and we've watched the work that they're doing. They're doing some amazing work. I would say that they um, really have some industry leading work. And uh, when we looked at um, what they were doing, we felt that it could um, uh, accelerate our autonomous program by uh, by that acquisition. So um, there's very specific features that uh, that they have that I think are are, are really quite impressive. Um, nothing against the internal work that we were doing, but we felt by complementing it with some of the work that they did, we could uh, get to let's say get to demo vehicles and get to market faster. And also I think it's really important um, when we talk about the new General Motors is um, how fast we're able to work with companies like that. I mean the time from initial discussion to acquisition is just incredible uh, these days. I mean it's really you know GM at the speed of light and it's uh, it's really fun to watch and I think it also shows a um, I don't want to say humbleness, but it's uh, you know there was a day where some might have called um, GM too arrogant to work with uh, outsiders like that. I think these days we're very open to bringing the best technology from wherever it may come, uh, suppliers, our own universities, wherever to um, accelerate innovation. Steve, I'd like to ask you about a uh, something that happened this week that the Ford Motor Company talked about, and that's a big. Um, million do billion dollar plus renovation of their Dearborn facility over the next 10 years and it reminded me that that GM is doing a lot of some of the same work now out at the tech center and has some plans to renovate downtown as well the main idea being that um, you want to create a, a an atmosphere for work that's somewhat different than it was in the past mm -hmm. that uh, might stimulate innovation stimulate creativity and also attract people and maybe intercept people who are headed to the coast, who are headed to Austin or to, right. or to Boston or to Brooklyn or to Palo Alto and get them to come to Detroit to work for General Motors and in the case of Ford, to Ford. Um, do you see this happening? Do you see this cultural change happening in, in General Motors and is it unfolding in a way that you think will be positive in terms of bringing some of the great minds and talents to the company? 
Yeah, uh, also a great question. You know, first let me say, um, as a former supplier that was able to visit a lot of facilities all over the world, um, especially back in my, my powertrain space, when I look across General Motors, General Motors has got some of the best powertrain facilities in the world, bar none. So the facilities in Rüsselsheim, Germany, the facilities at the headquarters in, uh, in Pontiac. Um, so I think General Motors' history of investing in these facilities is already quite, uh, quite significant and quite, quite impressive. The uh, investment that we made last year of uh, the billion dollar investment in our Warren Tech Center is uh, to do exactly what you were describing. First of all, it's a tech center with, that's just historic. There's you know, incredible things that have come out of Warren over the, the last uh, 60 People should know, I just got to interrupt briefly, Eero Saarinen, the very famous Finnish mm. uh, architect, was the one who laid out that whole campus. Right. In fact, it was such a big deal. President Eisenhower was there for the unveiling. Yeah. That's how much of a role the auto industry still played. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to, but I just wanted to interject. No, that. I appreciate it. And still, uh, it's a national historic site. So, uh, but the but the idea is there are some buildings and some uh, facilities there that have become a bit stale. So this billion dollar investment is really to give our uh, mainly our engineers, but also all of our uh, employees that are at that site the best facilities uh, in the world to work on, and really to inspire the the next generation generations of engineers to want to come and work in the auto industry and work in Detroit. Um, the, um, the, the concept of um uh, the workplace um, uh, layout is also quite interesting. So we've done a lot of work with uh, some of the Silicon Valley companies and other companies throughout the world looking at um, what the next generation of engineers desire in a workspace. And we're experimenting with a number of those, some going well, some not going so well. But it's um, really our dedication to just to make the uh, environment the best place to work. And the last thing I would say is uh, I sit on the board of um, the Berkeley uh, Engineering School, and we've been very focused on recruiting um, uh, engineers from, from the West Coast, been very, very successful. You'd be amazed at how many uh, California oh, kids right. we've encouraged to, uh, to come to General Motors, to come to Detroit. We usually start the visit in the summer, not the winter, <laughs> but um, it's been... And they move been, here? They don't so stay in your San Francisco office? No, no, because these are, these are folks that are doing uh, hardcore uh, engineering, so um, we've been so extremely has, successful. In so that. has anybody yet been on a skateboard out in Warren, and are you allowed to bring your dog to work? <laughs> uh, I'm sure someone's been on a skateboard, and I've seen a few dogs, but usually it's, uh, it's, uh, it's leader dogs. But yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> we're not ready yet to have, uh, have uh, beach volleyball in the center of the campus, but it was a proposal. I'll tell you that. It was a proposal from one of our employees. I'm intrigued when you, you say that you've taken the step of turning the tables and asking some of your, your key suppliers mm. to tell you what uh, you should be doing. And I'm, I'm not prying for, you know, some of the bad news and all, but... What are some of the things that stand out in your mind that's really benefited GM purchasing from that process? Yeah, you know, um, the biggest thing I would say, and usually the way I, I pose the question to our suppliers, because I, having been one, is they all sit in their boardrooms and they always say, if General Motors would just do this one thing, I could help them so much. And those are the kinds of things I'm trying to draw out, that we're trying to draw out. And when you ask the question that way, it's amazing the ideas that you get. Typically, what I think has been a problem in the past is, depending on where the ideas come into the company, there can be a resistance um, uh, within a function, because a lot of these problems are sort of complex. They bridge engineering, purchasing, manufacturing, sales, and you have to basically take an approach that, uh, at a high enough level in the organization, that can break down the silos and get the ideas implemented. And we, uh, we did this. As, uh, as you know, at our Supplier of the Year event a year ago, we asked our top uh, uh, 79 suppliers for their best ideas. It was amazing the ideas that came in. Within 30 days, we had over 100 ideas. We implemented more than half of them, and I can tell you the, the, the results were millions of dollars of savings. 
just from a simple question of what would you have us do? If a supplier has a problem, does he have a, a direct route to get to you? Even I'm talking about some of the smaller ones. I'm sure, uh, sure people at Delphi or, or Johnson Controls or Weir can get to you if there's an issue. But can the smaller suppliers, if there's kind of an old school GM kind of issue that they need ironed out, can they get to you to get some? They seem to be able to because I get a, <laughs> I get a uh, somehow my emails out there and somehow uh, if not email, I'm, I get a lot of it on uh, on LinkedIn. But yeah, I would say you know it's it's never perfect, but it is it is quite interesting at some of these larger uh, uh, conferences that we attend. You always do find you know one or two people that, and I'm always fascinated by it because quite often it's a very small supplier with what seems to be a very small problem, and I really enjoy sort of digging into them because you, you learn a lot about. Well, the supplier, but you learn a lot about our, our own company's behavior. And you know, we, we take every one of them serious and try to find a way to get to resolution, and I think we're getting better because of it. Your title, of course, is Vice President of Global Purchasing. Mm. How do you coordinate the different activities? Because you've got very different products, say, in China than you do here. There's overlap, but there's <clears> a lot of difference. Same with Europe. It's uh, Opal's off doing its sort of thing right now. What are the ways that you're using to make sure that it's operating as one organization and not as a collection of different geographic regions. Yeah, um, and I would I would uh, I would say that um, Opal's not really off doing their own thing because I feel as accountable for the uh, Opal turnaround as anything else that we're doing. I actually sit on the on the advisory board of, of Opal, but um, the way we're organized is we have a global staff and we've got uh, key executives in each region. We meet on a weekly basis, and um, you might be surprised at how much of this stuff is extremely coordinated. Our um, our top suppliers, of course, are all global, and um, when we talk to our uh, to our to our big global suppliers. We have a process uh, focused on our top 50 suppliers, which makes up almost half of our annual purchase value, our top 50 suppliers do. And uh, the coordination that we have between our regional vice presidents and our, our centralized team in North America here is really quite outstanding. The cooperation that we're getting, because quite often we need Europe to help South America, we need North America to help uh, China. It all works quite seamlessly and for the most part it's because many of our platforms are global platforms so there's a lot of sharing going on. Mm -hmm. You know one of the greatest dreams that any uh, supplier to the automobile industry can have is to someday be chosen by General Motors to be a supplier. Now as a practical matter many of the suppliers are tier two, tier three. They're suppliers to suppliers who mm -hmm. end up in a General Motors car. But is it, is it a reasonable dream today for any kind of uh, innovator or entrepreneur to someday become a GM supplier and how does that process actually start? And, and we need this in about 30 seconds, by the way. <laughs> the answer is yes, it's possible. And, and for the most part, we, uh, we encourage you know, some of the smaller startups to, uh, to, to work through the tiers. But you know, there will always be occasions. If you've got the right idea, the right technology, the, the, the right business model, uh, we'll go direct. There's always that opportunity. Very good. With that, we're going to have to wrap it up. I told you it'd go fast. It did this go fast. Terrific. Steve Kiefer, thanks so much for coming in and sharing all this stuff of what's going on at GM. And congratulations, you know, from going from the bottom of the list to most supportive OEM and getting uh, purchasing executive of the year. Quite a turnaround for you guys. Congratulations thank you. on that. David Welch, thank you for coming in. Daron Levine as well. And a uh, pleasure. Thank you. want to thank all of you for having tuned in.
Underwriting for Autoline this week has been provided by Borg Warner.